as a competitor, you can't have that. Uh, that scenario is, is deadly because if you're not trusting that pattern you've tied and you're doubting it before that knot is even done, for the next five or ten minutes of trying it, you're not going to give it 100% because you're already doubting it. So uh, what I try to do is when I go to any competition or even recreationally fishing, I'll, I'll sit back at home and I'll think about it. I'll, I'll put a box together. And that box will sit in my chest or in my top of my my, my uh, boat bag, and that's my go-to patterns. It'll be set in a row on the top. Uh, we'll have the the first choice, second, thirds, or even if I'm fishing dropper flies, they'll be put in sequence. Uh, so at least when I start fishing, I can look in there and not have to look through a massive number of flies and just start guessing. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, a look behind the scenes of the fly fishing world, featuring insight from guides and gear reps, conversation with resort managers, thoughts on entomology, discussions on fly patterns and destinations, and plenty of fish stories. Most importantly, it's an exploration of this lifelong journey we call fly fishing. Here is your host, Mark Hopley, with this episode of Fly Fishing 97. <laughs> I'm uh, kind of curious as, as a fellow that spends so much time on the water. Uh, you got to have some crazy things happen over the years out there to you, whether in competition or fishing recreationally. Uh, Todd, is there anything that comes to mind that kind of stands out? Oh boy, uh, there would be so many stories. <laughs> it would take you take you hours just to listen to them. But um, I would I would just say that basically I probably have encountered almost everything that that you've heard from all your other guests. Um, uh, a lot of them are more comical than anything else. But I, I think that uh, one of the things that really stands out as far as a story is one of my coaching episodes that we had was when I was fishing in uh, Scotland preparing for the world championship we did a trip over a year ahead of time and we had uh, hired one of the local scottish champions to uh, kind of help coach our team uh we were sitting in a boat with him fishing on the lake of Menteith uh in scotland near sterling and he he sat in between myself and our team captain and he was coaching us and i was sitting in the back of the boat the coach was in the front he was in the middle um the my team captain caught a fish or he thought he caught a fish. He was stripping and he had a bump bump and he said, ah, I got a fish. And then he struck and there was nothing. And, uh, he saw, I lost it. And then the, our gilly or our coach said, uh, no, he said, you have to ignore that. He said, uh, they're, they're sucking or plucking at your fly. Just ignore it. Uh, so then he casts out and he's stripping again. Same thing. He, he lifts his rod and sets the hook and there's no fish there. And I'm just kind of chuckling. So then uh, all of a sudden I get a little bump and I did the same thing. I lifted my rod to set the hook. And then the coach sat, who sat behind between us reaches into his box and he pulls out this priest, as they call it, a fish bonker, and slams it down on the top of his box and says, look, guys, he says, uh, I told you guys, I said, you do not react. He said, just leave it. Uh, they're trying to pluck or suck your fly in. Just ignore it. Next person who reacts is going to get this across your knuckles. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, with that being said, we, we learn real fast and hard as you're stripping and working your fly, not not to react, just wait for the fish to be on it and then do a strip set and then set the hook. And our catch rate went up significantly, probably four times what we were catching before by just a simple little lesson in a boat from somebody uh, who was there with a sense of humor but was also was looking after our best interests at the same time. Sounds like some sound advice. How, how often do you hear somebody say, oh, they're, they're grabbing the tail? 
I often wonder about that. I hear that a lot. And in my my presentations, I actually have some slides demonstrating what's happening. But basically, the a lot of fly fishers need to understand is that when you're retrieving your fly through the water, it's it's moving at a rate that's that's you know depending on how fast you're stripping or retrieving it through the water, or even if you're trolling. But the fish is basically swimming up behind it. And at this point in its life, it's probably done this thousands and thousands of times. It's followed a natural insect, and it's learned to suck it into its mouth. Of course, they don't have hands or any appendages to grab it, so they have to rely on suction to draw the food item into their mouth, which is accomplished by flaring their, their mouth cavity and dropping the, uh, the bottom or the floor of their mouth to create a, a big vortex to suck the food item into their mouth. So what happens when you're retrieving a fly through the water or trolling it the fish swims up behind it like it's done a, a thousands of times, and it's going to try to eat this food item. So it's sucking, trying to draw it into its mouth. And uh, sometimes that's a, those little bumps or little rod tip bends that you see that are happening or quivering. And uh, a lot of people at that point will react and will, will lift up their rod to try to, to set the hook. Uh, whereas the fish hasn't even grabbed it yet. It's just been sucking water along with that into its mouth. So then uh, by lifting up their rod, they pulled their fly instantly, you know, anywhere from 9 to 12 feet away from the fish in a split second. So that fish is gone. He's not, you're not going to get a second chance at him. But in this case, just ignoring that, what will happen is eventually that fish will go behind it and maybe try to suck, suck a few times. And when he realizes that he can't do it, he'll accelerate and swim onto it and then bite it. Uh, that was what, what the, our coach was trying to teach us in Scotland was the fact that if you ignore those little bumps – eventually the fish is going to get in its mouth. But one of the common mistakes uh, that people do is they just sort of write it off as a, the tail is too long on the pattern. They'll cut the tail shorter thinking they're going to hook up. But in reality, what happens a lot of times is by changing or altering the pattern, maybe that long tail is part of the, the attraction to the fish, why it came and it actually took your, your fly in the first place, but now you've altered it. And even beyond not catching more fish, you might get less strikes because they're not as attractive to the movement of it in the water. So ideally, if you're noticing something like that that's going on where you're getting those bumps and you think that it, your tail is too long, you're better off to either slow down your retrieve, ignore it, or else alter your retrieve. Uh, one thing that I compare it to is if you've ever fished in a boat with two rods, which you're allowed to do in British Columbia and I'm sure everywhere else in, in Canada, but uh, quite often someone will be on a motor and they'll have a rod in their hand, and they'll have the other rod in a rod holder. You ask people, and I'll ask it at my clinics, and typically 90% of them will say the same thing. I'll ask, which rod catches more fish? They'll say the one in the rod holder. The reason <laughs> why is the fish that have been sucking and bumping it get a chance to bite it before you can put your other rod down, reach over and grab it, so that maybe three or four seconds it takes you to put your rod in your hand down and grab the other one and pull it out of the holder, the fish is finally locked into it. So it's a good example showing that's yeah. an example of what happens. If you ignore and you give it that extra three or four seconds, eventually they'll accelerate on it and they'll lock onto it. That's that's so true. And you know what? That's I've never heard it put that way. Because the second you put your rod down to grab a sandwich or, or whatever, that's when your rod goes off, isn't it? And you're right. <laughs> exactly. Huh. Interesting. So I, 
I'm curious about Fly Fishing Canada. Could we could we jump into that a little bit? As you are the president of Fly Fishing Canada, what exactly? Um, tell me a little bit about the organization. Well, Fly Fishing Canada is is our governing body for competitive fly fishing for uh, Canada. Um, it's through Fly Fishing Canada that we send our teams to international events like the World Championships, the Commonwealth, Oceanas, and various. Uh, other international events that Canada competes at. We sent teams to the America Cup and to the U.S. Nationals also. So uh, if you're wanting to become a part of our national fly fishing team, Fly Fishing Canada is, is where you need to look into becoming a member of Fly Fishing Canada, uh, participating at some of the events. Uh, we have a national ranking program uh, basically records records the statistics of competitors from across Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have our, our national championships, which is a chance for competitors from the eastern and western and central Canada to come together once a year to compete against each other head-to-head. But of course, uh, it's not always possible every year for a competitor from the east coast to travel to the west or vice versa. So what we have is regional events in each part of Canada that uh, allow competitors to you know, maybe miss nationals uh, every second year and compete uh, against the competitors that are in their region. So our national ranking system that we have set up a, a leaderboard that records the uh, results from all these events across Canada. I think we had about 26 uh, events this year that were recorded, but it, it allows us to evaluate and see how competitors are doing in their region and also in it, uh, nationally at the same time at, at our national. So uh, Fly Fishing Canada is is the sort of the governing body that, that decides and selects who will go to represent Canada at the international events. Um, and it also uh, does a lot more than just the competition end of it. We uh, do conservation symposiums at our events. Uh, so we try to educate the competitors that come to these events and volunteers of the conservation efforts that are being you know, being uh, performed in different parts of Canada so that people have a chance to even share what they're doing in their region that might be helpful for other regions or understand the challenges that other places in Canada face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also work a lot with kids. Uh, we have uh, youth programs. We have a youth national fly fishing team that represents Canada at, uh, at the World Championships and also at other international events. Uh, so it's really uh, about finding... Um, people that are, are wanting to be involved in the competitive uh, sport of fly fishing and also just through promoting uh, fly fishing in general uh, through the gathering of these uh, competitors at events. Uh, just like our, our league here in British Columbia, in all honesty, I, I consider it more of a big fly fishing club. Uh, we just use competitive events as more of a gathering or focus point to get together and socialize. So. Uh, it's not about who can beat who or who's the top dog or top rod. Uh, I always use the saying that, in my mind, the biggest winner at any event is the guys with the biggest smile or girls with the biggest smile. Mm-hmm. So it, it's about enjoying and celebrating the sport of fly fishing more than you know the trophies and prizes. Not that we have any prize money in our sport. It's just more a matter of recognizing people for their accomplishments and encouraging them you know, maybe through a little ribbon or a small little trophy. So, again, any profits that we make through our events, the one that was just held in uh, Ontario this year, all the profits went to uh, Big Brothers. Uh, we had nationals in British Columbia two years ago uh, that I organized, and all the profits went to help a uh, local fly fishing club uh, put together docks for handicapped and kids uh, kids to get on a lake to fish. So 
we try to leave a, a you know a very natural footprint behind in the sense that we don't want to damage fisheries. It's all catch and release, uh, but we also want to try to you know promote the sport and have people encouraged to come out and have fun and participate and see what we're all about whenever we do come to a different part of Canada. That's good stuff. Todd, was that uh, that competition a couple of years ago? Was that on the Similkameen? Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, we fished two sessions on the Similkameen River, and then we fished on Tunquil Lake, uh, Corbett Lake, and Batstone at Seven and a Half Diamond Ranch. But uh, the Similkameen River is just uh, an incredible venue. I don't know if you fished it before, but... I, I- I wish you'd stop naming my favorite fishing holes, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah, I fished it a few times. Yeah, that's that's probably my yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even know. I might edit that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got a, a great whitefish population in it. Uh, the trout, rainbow trout, in there. Uh, we caught cutthroat in there and brook trout too uh, during our brook event. trout. Yeah, you caught uh, just wow. very few, but uh, there are some that come down from the headwaters up in the mountains above there that were stocked years ago with brook trout. But uh, one thing that is uh, valuable, too, is with the, the events, especially here in British Columbia, the ones that we put on with our league, is we take the uh, fish statistics and forward it to the fish biologists so mm-hmm. they can see how the rivers and the lakes are doing. And in some cases, uh, some of the fisheries managers are extremely excited to see how their their venue is stacking up against other lakes and such just in the sense of knowing that they're managing it proper, but having competitors on a lake and catch and releasing their fish and recording them, uh, it's, it's information that really uh, they, they couldn't get otherwise because there's just not the resources to send uh, biologists out to, to um, you know, to right. catch and, and capture and, and release and record these fish. I, I've caught some cutthroat in the Similkamina, just, just near where the Ashinola flows in. Uh, I don't know where those fish get in there, but uh, they're pretty. Yeah, well, the, I caught one in Nationals, too. It was a West Slope cutthroat. It was just gorgeous yeah. fish. Uh, I've caught them in the Rockies, but I was really surprised to see them in, in that area. Well, I know they have them up in Cathedral Lake Parks and some of those uh, little creeks and whatnot that come down the Ashinola kind of end up, well, they all, all roads lead to, to Rome there. So, yeah, that's a beautiful river. I did read that you caught, was it 76 fish in three hours or something? So, yeah. Uh, I, that that kind of scared me because I spent a lot of time on that river, and uh, I'd be happy to catch that in two days. Well, there there's some some areas on the river that are more productive, obviously, than others. Um, but what what you find is, especially when you're fishing when it's later in the season when the water levels are lower, uh, the fish tend to co- get more concentrated into the pools and areas that have got a bit more depth and maybe a bit more feed in them. So again, mm-hmm. fishing in the spring when the river's high, yeah, it's, it can be a challenge. We fished it, it with different events, and the statistics out of it from the spring are completely different than in the fall. But one thing that really surprised me on a river like that, and I'm sure it's with a lot of other rivers, but we fished this Milkameen uh, River in, in the spring uh, and even in the summer, and there was a good mix of whitefish and rainbows. Um, but in a period of about three weeks, being early fall, uh, when we had nationals, I, there was like next to zero percent uh, rainbow caught, all whitefish. Uh, we didn't yeah. we didn't realize, and even the local uh, biologists didn't realize that the fish actually travel up in the tributaries and into uh, a lake further upstream to prepare for the winter. So again, it was just information like that that was like a big uh, sort of eye opener of of the fish 
you know, the, their mannerism and their just their behavior of what they do at different times of years that otherwise they wouldn't have known what was happening there. It always amazes me in that river where you can find fish that you wouldn't think they'd be hiding. Exactly. But, you know, one of the things uh, with different techniques, you know, when you talk about stuff that have been sort of game changers um, is the, the check nymphing or short line nymphing, if you'd call it. That technique, you can go up to spots in the river where people would normally walk by if they're dry fly fishing or swinging wets, and you can actually pretty much scour the bottom and find these fish in in areas that I used to fish for years before I learned how to fish uh, check nymphing style. Um, Areas that I used to go to, uh, I would be lucky to catch maybe three or four fish. Uh, Going back in there once I learned the technique, you know, you were catching like five or six times that amount of fish in the same water and realizing that, you know, how many times have I missed these fish before? But someone once told me is that if you could if you could actually see how many fish have, have actually interacted with your fly and refused it or taken it and you had no idea, it would just absolutely make you sick because uh, that's typical with rivers is that the fish take so fast. Uh, a lot of people that, that try to learn how to to river fish that are lake fishermen, their problem is that they expect that when a fish takes it, they're just going to pull and set the hook themselves. Like when you lake fish, uh, that's quite often the case when you're trolling. Uh, you don't really necessarily have to react. The fish will, will do the job for you. But in rivers, the challenge is that when the fish take and reject your fly, it's so fast that unless you really are paying attention to it or have a great indicator system to realize that, that the fish has maybe grabbed the fly, uh, you're going to miss out on it almost every time. So, again, I, I've fished with people and watched them nymphing, especially, and how many fish they miss, uh, it's just unbelievable just because they haven't right. learned yet. But it's like steelheading or any other uh, type of fishing or angling is that the first few fish you catch are always tough and challenging, but the more you catch, the more you will catch because – you start to understand the subtle changes and the little details that you should have been paying attention to. And it's the same thing with, uh, with nymphing in rivers, I find, is that you really have to uh, put in your time and practice uh, to become very proficient at it and to experiment and learn and see what's happening. And that's why, why I really enjoy a river like the Similkamine, where it's got a healthy population of whitefish, because in this case, rather than fishing a, a very, you know, low number population river or even lake for that matter uh, just catching the odd fish here and there really doesn't give you a chance or opportunity to understand what it is that you're doing that made the difference whereas if you're just catching one fish you you can attribute it to one one aspect of what your presentation was but when you start catching numerous ones eventually you start to key in and realize that okay Maybe it was just a different angle on the way you were were leading your flies through the water, or maybe you gave it a little bit longer so it could actually swing up. So again, if if you can fish any body of water, whether it's a river or a lake, where there's more fish in it, that that's where you'll learn to perfect your technique is by having that opportunity to to gauge it on a more repetitive stage where uh, you have a chance to see what made the difference. Well, the whitefish offer a perfect opportunity for that because they're usually pretty schooled up, and once you dial it in, that can get pretty addictive. It does, and the unique thing about whitefish that I find is that uh, I know with nationals that that I I experienced this was fishing through a pool and catching quite a few, you know, maybe a dozen whitefish, and then all of a sudden it just turned off, and I knew that at that point I pretty much poked everyone down there that was willing, so I, I basically 
switched the pattern, same pattern, but a different color, went through it again and picked off the, probably the same dozen fish again just by a change in the pattern. So again, they're very receptive to, to taking a fly several times, but they're not that unintelligent that they don't know danger when they see it coming their way again after they've just been hooked. So just a good tip too is uh, for your for your viewers or listeners is uh, when you are fishing a, a river or even with lakes too, is if you're in an area that's productive and it's sort of shut down, it's to try a different color or just not necessarily a different pattern, but just a different color or shade. Uh, sometimes you can reawake those same fish and uh, have them come back. I know that some of the events that I've been to, a competitor has lost a fly on a, on a bigger cutthroat or a rainbow. And then uh, next person's come through that same hole, you know, maybe a period of half hour to an hour later and caught that same fish. The reason why they knew is because the other fly was still in its mouth and they knew who tied that. So, so, so again, <laughs> it, just that subtle change in color or presentation, you can quite often hook the same fish. Uh, brown trout are notorious for that uh, resetting and, and taking a fly again uh, several times, but whitefish will do it over and over, I find. Uh, sometimes I feel I've caught the same one three or four times you know, within a couple of hours in the same hole. You know what I'm continuously amazed by is the fact that uh, patterns that you used 5, 10, 20 years ago maybe don't work like they used to. You ever find that? I do. You know, um, I've had patterns like, like you and like everybody else. Uh, you know, you look back at your old boxes, which I always keep, and uh, you have patterns that used to work, and they were like your favorite, your go-to, and that's that's all you would fish because you knew that that was the one you needed. But then with the you know with the onslaught of all these like boobies and blobs and all sorts of patterns that we're using, uh, sometimes I think the problem is that we lose sight of the fact that those patterns worked back in the day, and they will still work now. Um, I know when I fish in competitions, sometimes uh, the fish become a bit too accustomed to seeing the bright flashy stuff. Uh, so in, in some cases I'll keep those old boxes on me. And, uh, I know that one event I fished, uh, one of our provincial championships on the lake, uh, everybody was into the, like the vampires, the blobs, the boobies and everything else going on under the sun, these bright obnoxious colors. I was catching some fish, but it was not what I thought it could have been. And I just sort of reflected and thought back. I thought, you know what? When I used to fish this lake years ago, I would fish with nothing but a scud imitation. So so I went into mm-hmm. my box and just put on an old scud imitation, tied on an old mustad hook, not the fancy European hooks. And I proceeded to win the session just by fishing something natural. And uh, in the wow. case of competitions, quite often you'll, you'll hear other anglers that, that might notice it or they don't notice it, but the recreational anglers are doing better than them. So, I mean, when I, when I fish on a, on a body of water and I see recreational anglers doing better than what I'm doing, I'll sort of think, okay, maybe I've got to rethink my game. I've got to go back to maybe what I think they're probably using, which are more natural imitative patterns. Maybe these fish have seen so many uh, patterns through the course of the competition that they're, they're just kind of turned off by it. I know that, especially with, with rivers, uh, some of the teams will we'll have a certain sequence that they'll go through with the bead colors. They'll start out maybe with golds and silvers and then go to coppers and then right to black later on in the competition because the fish are seeing that and they're becoming wary of these uh, flashy colors. So I think it's the same thing with lakes too, is that the fish kind of get uh, turned off. But 
I've done that too, where I, where I have fished competitions and I've won it with nothing but patterns that I used when I started fishing back in the nineties. That's interesting to me. Cause I, like how often do you think of like patterns in a fly shop, Todd, like a, uh, back in the day it was a Montana or uh, just a pheasant tail halfback or yeah. a peacock halfback. And nobody uses those much anymore, really. No, exactly. You know, and it, it does become a bit of a, a an, I would call it a handicap is that especially with newer competitors, um, they kind of handicap themselves in the sense that they get too hot hung up on the new, the hot patterns. Uh, they have to be able to have that, that ability to know when to switch back or, and in my mind, that's where a lot of the top competitors, uh, excel is that they have that ability to know when it's time to change and they don't just think about it when, when they feel that it's time to change, they, they, they change. They don't sit there and think about it. Should I change? Should I do this? Should I do that? No, they'll do it. And that's where the difference can make uh, in their results. But what I, what I do typically when I fish a competition, and um, I relay this to in my seminars, is that, is that I actually will sit down and write myself a letter of encouragement. And I do this maybe a week or two before the event. And what it does is it's like I'll sit down and write myself a note or letter in case things aren't going well, have you tried this? Did you do this? Did you try that fly? Did you try that line? Mm-hmm. Did you do this technique? Uh, and if I'm fishing a competition and I'm struggling, or even if I'm doing well during a break in it, I'll actually pull it out and I'll read it because I've written this letter when my mind is clear, when I'm not necessarily yeah. dehydrated or stressed. I'm not fishing under pressure. I'm sitting at home on my couch with my wife and my dogs watching TV or the fire and I'm thinking through the, the process ahead of time to know what I should be trying. But when you get into the actual uh, competition, uh, just with the stress, sometimes you overlook it because you talk to a, even a recreationally fishing on a trip. How many times have you driven home and on your ride home you think, oh, shoot, I should have tried that, whatever, that Montana Nymph. It's in my box. I forgot right. about it. Or you get home and you're drying out your flies and you look through the box and you realize, I should have tried that fly. I didn't try it. Because you get that sort of that almost panic state when things aren't going right. And uh, I think we've all done that where you start putting on a fly. And even before you've tied the knot, you're already doubting it. <laughs> you know, you're, you're second <laughs> that's, guessing that's your choice. Me. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and as a competitor, you can't have that. Uh, that scenario is, is deadly because if you're not trusting that pattern you've tied and you're doubting it before that knot is even done for the next five or 10 minutes of trying it, you're not going to give it a hundred percent because you're already doubting it. So uh, what I try to do is when I go to any competition or even recreationally fishing, I'll, I'll sit back at home and I'll think about it. I'll, I'll put a box together and that box will sit in my chest or in my top of my, my, my uh, boat bag. And that's my go-to patterns. It'll be set in a row on the top. Uh, we'll have the, the first choice, second, thirds, or even if I'm fishing dropper flies, they'll be put in sequence. Uh, so at least when I start fishing, I can look in there and not have to look through a massive number of flies and just start guessing. So I think a lot of the, the, the issues for competitors and recreational anglers is they carry too many flies and they don't have them organized well. So, I mean, if you spend the time to organize your fly box, whether it's in a boat or in your, your chest pack or your vest, uh, your, your success rate will increase just due to the fact that you're actually fishing patterns that make sense or made sense right. when you were sitting down thinking about it. But in the heat of the battle, when you're fishing and you're just not catching fish, again, recreationally or competitively, 
uh, you make bad choices sometimes because you're not really thinking it through. But by writing that little letter to myself, it's really it's a comforting thing to sit down and read it. Take take maybe thirty seconds or or even a minute in a boat or on the river, just to go through. And, and this is my clear-minded self talking to my panicky self, right? So that is really really good stuff. I, I never would have thought of that. Well, it really does help, and just little things that that I've sort of learned and have done over time. Like even with the sinking lines, um, you know, you've probably had some of your guests talk to you about the different sink rates and the countdown method. Uh, what I do uh, is I actually take a little chart I, I made up, uh, which is not that hard or, or difficult to do, but uh, rather than having to count your seconds and figure out your depth, you know, like a type 7, seven uh, line or whatever you're using, knowing at 30 seconds how far down it is. I mean, who wants to sit in a boat and do math in your head? Okay, you know, 7 times 30, that's 210. How many feet is that? You know, so I'll, I'll have little little cheat sheets, I call them, on the lid of my real case, and I'll just look, type 7 line, okay, here it is, 30 seconds, that's your depth right there. So I, right. I know what depth I'm at. So if I'm using, say, a, a Type 3 and I'm hitting them at, at 15 seconds, I'm realizing that, okay, that's a lot of time just waiting for it to sink. So I'll grab a Type 7 and then I'll look at the chart to cross over for that depth for 15 seconds for the Type 3. That, that might only be 7.5 seconds with the uh, 7. So I'm more effectively per cast getting it at, at the right depth uh, in a quicker fashion, but also I'm able to control the depth by picking a different line and reducing the amount of wait time for it to get down there. So just little things you do. That's next level kind of stuff. I, I mean, that's, <laughs> you're obviously doing a lot of homework. Well, you, you try to, you know, and I always feel that, that uh, you know, you need to approach any sort of sport that you do, or whether it's, again, recreationally or, or competitively. Uh, for me, I just want to give it the best effort I can give it whenever I do something. Um, my wife kind of calls me a bit of a perfectionist in that, that respect, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that uh, someone criticizing you about your flies being a little bit too picky or too precise, that's not a bad thing, but you don't necessarily have to focus on making everything perfect. It's just knowing how to compromise and work other things to help make what you're doing better. It's not like... You know, even with competitors, I, I always tell uh, beginners that, you know, there's always going to be someone better than you that you're going to be fishing against uh, recreationally or competitively, but especially competitively, uh, there's going to be someone who's going to be better than you. But it's the little things that you can do to make yourself more effective that maybe they're just not necessarily paying attention to those small details uh, or preparing as well as you are. That could put you on a, on a level playing field. So. I've seen, you know, total amateurs step into a competition and do extremely well against top-ranked guys just because of that fact they've spent the time to do all the things behind the scene to prepare that have kind of helped them balance out with a competitor who's actually, you know, maybe has a higher skill level or set than the other person. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I would assume that uh, being part of uh, Canada's national fly fishing team means that you guys are I assume you're sponsored by rod companies and whatnot, or do you just use whatever gear you're comfortable with? Well, in, in general, the majority of the competitors <clears throat> don't have any sort of sponsorship. Um, some of us, myself included, are fortunate to have had associations with different companies that will give you, uh, you know, pro pricing deals. Um, some people mistakenly say they're pro staff, but they're not. They're just getting the pro pricing deals. Uh, I think that a lot of the competitors, if once they start excelling in the sport and doing better 
the, the companies want to have that association. It's just like uh, Nike with Tiger Woods, if he's a good example. I'm not sure these days. But uh, trying to use somebody who's who's near the top of their game, uh, they'll approach them because they, they have a certain budget set up for that sort of advertising. Uh, but overall, the majority of the competitors really don't have a, a great you know sponsorship program set up. Um, but by you know doing well, you can have a chance to present yourself. But it's just like anything in life. The companies want to make sure that you're a great um, role model, a good ambassador of the sport, and somebody that they'd be proud to put their name behind because uh, there's nothing worse than people that just want to get gear for free and don't do their uh, you know their proper sort of give back to the community and to the the company. Like a lot of times, uh, uh, people just go out hunt, hunting for that pro staff, you know, hashtag pro staff. You see it all the time. Uh, people that want to try to to try and uh, get something for free. But I've always looked at it the other way. Even though I've been with Sage and uh, Islander Reels and Rio and a few other companies over the years, um, I don't take advantage of all the free stuff. I just take what I know I need. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get my free rod every year. Uh, if I don't need a rod, I don't need a rod. But that's a mentality that I would hope more uh, competitors and anglers in general would take because that greed kind of depletes the available resources that could be used by other people that might need it more than them, uh, if you know what I mean. I do. I do. But, so you know, uh, just on, on a personal level, um, what what do you like to cast? Are you a sage guy or what are you, what are you casting in the river? You know, I, I've used a lot of different rods of working up to this. I've been with Sage since 2005, actually, uh, pro-staffed and um, using their equipment. I've been through their plant, and I've, I've worked in trade show booths and promoted them in different ways and manners. But when I do my, my seminars, even though I'm pro-staffed, I, the first thing I'll do before I do the slideshows is I'll, I'll make it clear to the audience that I'm not here to sell you on the product. I'm only showing these slides with this brand because that's what I'm using. But I'll even tell them that, you know, it's not necessarily going to make you a better angler. It's all about finding what's in your comfort zone, what you can afford, uh, realistically knowing where you can compromise. Maybe you can go a bit cheaper on a reel because realistically a reel doesn't do much more than hold the fly line and backing in my mind, unless you're targeting big game fish. Right. But I mean, the majority of the time, I never use a reel when I play fish, even up to, you know, five, six, seven pounders. I'm stripping them by hand. So I kind of uh, try to educate the public uh, that are that are at the presentations that just because you see people using this, don't think you've got to spend a ton of money to become good at the sport. I mean, uh, in the case of, you know, even just using um, example like tapered leaders, um, the fly shops hate it when I do this part of the presentation, but I explained to them that when you're using us on a lake, when you're using a sinking line, there is no physical reason why you should be using a tapered leader, just tying direct uh, yeah. level diameter uh, fluorocarbon from the loop right to the fly is all you need. You've only got two knots. You don't have a, a leader in between tapered leader with, you know, with knots on it that could fail. Um, it's going to be more effective. It's not going to affect the way it sinks because it's a uniform diameter. It's going to be more natural in the water. Uh, but, you know, th- there's just little things that, that you try to educate people on is that the more you spend on the equipment, is not going to make you a better angler. It's not going to guarantee you more pleasure out of what you're doing. But that being said, there are advantages of using 
better quality equipment because it will facilitate, you know, more effective hook set maybe uh, mm-hmm. in the case of trying to strike at a fish at a greater distance, having a stronger backbone in your rod or or maybe having a more sub- subtle tip in the rod, uh, protect your tippet when you're fishing them with real light tippet. Um, but there, there's things that do make a difference. But overall, uh, I'm not a big promoter of trying to, to sell people on using what I use. Uh, if they want to know what I use, uh, I use Sage because I have confidence in it. It works well for me, and uh, I don't see a need to change. Even with uh, Sage, for example, I've been using the Z-Axis series rod, which is an old series rod, but that's my lake rod. Uh, you know, I compete at all sorts of lake championships, even though I have access to their newest lineup. I don't see a need to change for myself personally because... I don't necessarily fall into that mentality. You've got to have the newest, the latest model. It's new and it's proved. You know, there's always this new and improved mentality with all sorts of things in, in fly fishing. But if it weren't great at one time and it was the top of your game, <laughs> is it really going to make that much more difference to spend another, you know, 500 or $1,000 to change up to the newest thing? Well, and I think more importantly, you know that rod. You know how it's going to cast. You know exactly where that fly is going to land. And that's, that's huge. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what's critical too. I mean, there is a point where better can make a difference, but for the average person, uh, I don't advise them to run out. It's just like, uh, you know, I'm in the automotive industry as a living. I don't make a penny off of fly fishing, but uh, I always encourage my apprentices when they started out, you know, go buy a a set of of tools from Sears. You know, you go to the Mac or the Snap-on truck, especially the Snap-on tools, you're going to spend probably uh, five or six times the amount of money to get the same stuff you would have got out of Sears. So there's a point where you realize what tools can do the job more, more effectively when you become an expert and you could notice it. But the average right. beginner, you don't need to run out and spend, you know, two or $3,000 to impress the people around you because it's not going to impress them if you don't know how to use them. So uh, I advise people like that to spend more money and resources on getting educated on how to fish or how to cast rather than thinking that the, the rod's going to do it for them or that line is going to give them a, a more sensitivity or greater distances out of their cast. But uh, right. in my mind, a lot of the problem with fly fishing in general, as far as being an industry, is that people are just thinking they've got to get the newest, they've got to get the greatest, the latest. And then you'll see all sorts of rod companies on the market that are, you know, marketing different, like European nymphing rods, for example, or, or even the lake rods. But uh, there's stuff that we used when we all started fly fishing and they worked fine in those days and you caught fish on them. So, I mean, really, do you really need to improve from maybe that Kmart rod that was working back then up to, uh, you know, a thousand dollar rod? Well, I, I know for, for me, I always look for that value, Todd. So, like, I got a $1,200 rod, but it's not my favorite rod. Uh, my favorite rod's probably 400 bucks that I happen to have. And, and it, it doesn't, the price doesn't matter, does it, at some point? And, and things, I don't want to say get over-engineered, but, you know, it, just because it's a, a quarter of an ounce lighter doesn't make it a better rod. No, you know, and... and... To be honest with you, when I see a rod is lighter, I'm wondering where are they sacrificing in the in the design of it uh, and in manufacturing of it to get that much lighter. I mean, that all sounds fine, but I mean, realistically, if you're worried about the weight of a rod over a day, go to a gym or pick up some weights and actually work your arm out. <laughs> it's it, it's not going to make that much more of a difference in it, it. But like I said, if you're worried about the weight of the rod, well, start lifting weights a bit more, and it's not a bad thing in general, but it's 
it's not in my mind the thing that you need to focus on on a rod um there's just other ways to get around it yeah that's that's well said i i really appreciate your candor because uh somebody uh you know like yourself you seem like a, a very humble guy because i'm looking at your resume here and we haven't even talked about this but and i don't know if you're comfortable talking about this but you're actually the number one ranked fly fisherman or fly fisher in canada in a ranking and in the last three years is that correct uh, yes, that's right. And I knew you weren't going to bring it up, so I thought I would. <laughs> well, you know, and, and again, it's it's not that's not the reason why I do the sport, and uh, I'm just happy to do well for the sake of my teams when I compete. Um, I always feel that if uh, if an individual is team minded, uh, he can contribute to a team, and if if the team does well, the individuals do well. But if you have a bunch of indi- individual uh, competitors with that individual mentality wanting to be the top of the game individually, uh, those type of teams never succeed or rarely do. It's, it's more, I would say, any any success I have individually is a result of my teammates and the team effort. It's not me necessarily on my own. Uh, of course, you have to study and, and become good at what you're doing, but a lot of that I always attribute it back to my mentors. I mean, I've fished with some of the best fly fishermen around the world in England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and uh, in Europe with the Czechs and the Poles. And we had David Arkay this past summer in Ireland. But it's all the learning process that goes back to even my roots of learning from like Brian Chan and Phil Rowley. Uh, all of that you have to realize and be humble that it's not you, it's it's the ability to have people around you that were, were kind enough to mentor and share with you, uh, which I try to pass on too. It's uh, one, one example is uh, doing my seminars. I get a lot of competitors that I compete against coming out to the actual seminars to try to improve their, their, uh, I guess their skill levels. But I remember one competitor asked me, said, uh, well, that was great. I learned a lot. Um, but you know, aren't you worried that, that we're going to use this against you at the next competition. And I just flat out told him, I said, you know what? I said, that's my goal. I said, in my mind, there's no, no um, satisfaction or but no, no enjoyment of me beating people with a lesser skill than what I have. I said, uh, I would rather have you know and understand what I've learned and what's been shared with me, I'll share with you so that if I do do well, I have more satisfaction knowing that I'm not holding back valuable information that could make you a better angler. It's the same a scenario of uh, being a black belt in a karate dojo and beating up white belts. There, there's no satisfaction or pleasure in that whatsoever because you know that your skill levels are, are on different planes. So uh, I try to share what I've learned because I realize that any success that I've had is due to these people and to try and give credit just to yourself uh, is the wrong approach in, yeah. in, in this sport and in life in general. That's, that's very well put. If you could change one thing about fly fishing, what would it be? One thing I would change, I would like to see more women and children involved. Mm-hmm. That, that, would, that would be it. Um, uh, we made it sort of a mission with Fly Fishing Canada and here in British Columbia with our league to try and encourage more women and children to be involved. Uh, I just, I cannot totally grasp why it is maybe um, that there's more men and, you know, involved in the sport than there are women and children. But um, my sort of thought on it is that if, if every 
every uh, fly fisher out there would just try to introduce fly fishing to one woman and one child every year, that that would be a huge significant difference in, in our, our sport in the mix of uh, genders and, and ages in our group. We had that with our national championships a few years ago. We looked around the room at our at our AGM and the majority of the people in the room, except for my son, were uh, 30 years plus, right. um, and majority were in the the, the the 50 to 60 year range. Um, and I just looked at it, and someone brought it up to our attention. We realized we need to really change that, not not even just for competitive fishing, but even some of the clubs I've been to to speak at. The majority of the population uh, in the room uh, are in that same thing, that 50 to 60 your age bracket you're not seeing a lot of teenagers or or kids but uh that's where i'm finding with the competitive fly fishing it's kind of appealing to this the millennium uh age uh, where you're seeing these these guys that are coming out in that that age that you know maybe 18 to uh, 30 that are coming out and they're enjoying it Uh, but it's just a matter of how much effort we put into it um fly fishing unfortunately a lot of people consider it to be a solitary you know activity but by having it as a competitive uh, sport for us, a lot of the competitors have been encouraged and they've been doing it is to bring a friend out, bring someone out, have them come out and enjoy it, have fun and learn. But uh, with competitive fly fishing, what happens is a lot of the competitors that do come out for the first or a few times, they're intimidated. But once they realize it's just a bunch of other fly fishers like me, uh, they see the value in it because they're learning by watching, uh, by talking to other people. And people just in general willing to share. Again, it, it it's just something that has more positives in my mind than negatives, uh, being that it, it's helping in our region. We're seeing a, a big spike in, in the number of kids that are coming out for the events. Um, we've sent several of them to the world championships and other events. So they've had a chance to see parts of the world that, you know, you or I would have dreamed as a kid to go to France or, or Ireland or down to Colorado to fish some of the great rivers down there too. So it's, it's an opportunity for those kids that don't necessarily like myself want to spend time on a, on a team sport or the basketball team, but uh, they have an uh, avenue for them to, uh, you know, get some life experiences, interact with adults and just in general to help protect and be good stewards of our rivers and our lakes. I think that's key too. You know, if that generation isn't coming up behind, then, then, you know, conservation is going to hurt in, in the long run. And, I think inclusion is a big thing too, you know, like how do we get more people? Cause I mean, I, I remember when I, I mean, I'm, I'm in that bracket, I'm 49, so I'm pushing 50. Um, and when I started, I was intimidated as a young guy. I'm like going into fly shops and, and, and there is kind of an exclusionary kind of thing that used to go hand in hand. And I, I really hope we're moving away from that. I do too. You know, that sort of elitism uh, attitude I think it's kind of softening up as you're seeing like the newer generations becoming involved. Um, But, you know, I think that will still exist as it will with any sport. But, you know, I think these people just have to, you know, kind of get off their high horses and just realize they put on their waders one leg at a time like the rest of us. But um, what what, uh, I think would really help, too, is just to have more positive mentors like – you know, you're seeing people like April Volke and other uh, mm-hmm. female fly fishers that are out there that are just, in general, real nice people. Uh, that that kind of helps to take away that stigma that you know that uh, that we're you know hung up or we're, we think we're better than the the bait fishermen or the gear fishermen. 
we're not. Uh, that's how we, most of us, that's our roots and mine included. I, I started out, like I said, uh, drowning worms in bread dough. So I, I don't look down on anyone else. And I always think that as long as they're having a good time, that's what it's about. It's about getting outside, enjoying the outdoors, our resources and protecting them at the same time, but sharing time with your family and kids and friends. And it's, it's not, not what defines or makes us to say you're a fly fisher, but it should be something that you should be proud of because it gives the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, allow you to interact with, with total strangers. I mean, you look at the internet nowadays in the past, you would never talk to a total stranger on the internet and agree to meet in the woods somewhere. But now, now with all these forums, it's you're, you're meeting people that you don't even know and you're willing to go because you know, they're a fly fisher. So, I mean, that, that, that stigma is kind of disappearing that uh, with the internet even too, is that, you know, the fly fishers, you kind of realize, Hey, he's a decent guy. He fly fishes or how many times you walk into a room of people with your wife or girlfriend and you're trying to find someone to talk to someone says they, they fly fish or they're wearing a Sims hat or something oh, and yeah. you're drawn like a magnet to them. Right. Yeah. So you've got that common bond. You've got that sort of uh, something you can relate to someone. And I think that's what's unique about fly fishing, even traveling for all the traveling. I do you sit in an airport, someone will see me with a sage hat on or something, or I'll see someone with a fishing magazine. Well, you've got instantly got a friend. Exactly. You can sit down and start talking. And that's just pretty, pretty special and pretty neat when you can do that. So I would like to see that development in fly fishing get away from that uh, snobbish or elitist, you know, stigma to, yeah, they're a bunch of great guys. Well, I think the fly fishing world needs more people like you. Thanks so much, Todd. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's been great. Thank you. I have a question for you, though. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, maybe uh, book you for a seminar or uh, something like that, what's the best way to go about that? Uh, they could find my, uh, I have a fly fishing forum. It's called the Innovative Fly Fisher. So if you just Google Innovative Fly Fisher, you'll find the forum. Uh, it's a free forum. I don't make a penny off of it. Uh, it's just basically an information sharing area. But my contact is on there, so it's just uh, Innovative Fly Fisher Forum. And there's uh, a ton of information for the recreational anglers, and also there's a competitive uh, sub-forum on it for those that want to learn more about the sport and maybe participate or come out and see what it's all about. You've been listening to an interview today with Todd Oshie, President of Fly Fishing Canada, competitive fly fisher out of Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Thanks for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you would like to hear on the show. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.